This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Thursday the 21st of January. That's right. And early this morning, at least Australian time, Joe Biden has been sworn into office as the new US president. And before he took office, he was really clear that he wanted to be very tough on coronavirus. But the scale of the pandemic in the States is just massive. Yesterday, they passed a milestone of 400,000 deaths. The pace of the spread really isn't slowing down. So is it actually possible to, for Joe Biden to get the pandemic under control? And if so, what is it going to take? Well, it's going to take a lot. And we just should note in passing yesterday's really moving ceremony um, at the mall, commemorating the deaths or honouring the deaths of of the more than 400,000 people who've died of COVID-19. Now, and you'd have to say that that's a number that's been largely preventable um, to a very significant extent if America had got its act together early on. And just a very brief run through of the disaster that's unfolded in the United States where they knew it was coming, they were in contact with the Chinese, they didn't have a test that worked. The CDC was insisting that people use their tests. The Food and Drug Administration was being very slow in approving new tests. People in Washington State, public health officials in Washington State, were tearing their hair out because they knew it was spreading in Washington State. And they had no national coordination of testing uh, of a testing infrastructure. And it just spread and spread and spread under this radar. People didn't know how much there was around and there were unreasonable restrictions on who could be tested. So all on top of a fragmented system with no leadership, with President Trump constantly trying to minimise the problem and avoid it and undermine the people who were advising him. And they jettisoned at the beginning of the uh, Trump administration, they jettisoned the Obama pandemic plan. And when they game planned a pandemic in 2019, a year or so before the pandemic, they found that it was wanting, um, that they didn't, they were not ready for it, and the national stockpile was depleted. You can't imagine a bigger cluster of problems than they had in the United States. So what can Biden do? So the first thing he's intending to do is amp up vaccination rates considerably by creating new infrastructure for vaccination around the country. Remember, there's no infrastructure of general practice of coordinated healthcare systems in the United States. So you've got to set something up in parallel. So he's devoted a lot of money to that because Apparently, of the 30-odd million doses that have been distributed in the United States, only a fraction have actually been administered. It's an extraordinary situation, again, with very restricted rules about who can be immunized and not, and there's reports of doses going to waste. So even doses that were supposed to have been given have not been given and actually have been thrown in the bucket. The other thing that uh, he is going to do is create a national testing infrastructure. So in fact, you get coordinated testing nationwide, um, which you don't, believe it or not, have have at at the moment. And then there's mandatory mask wearing in federal property, uh, which is really the only power I think that the president has, and to encourage mask wearing around the country. But reality is that uh, only a severe and very long lockdown will get this under control while the pandemic spreads, and it will spread for a long time while um, they are immunizing. It's going to be a long time before this is coming, this comes under control. So essentially, the Biden administration is doing nothing fancy. It's doing stuff that's just basic to controlling a pandemic. They're starting on the back foot, really. Like in, in some ways, the Trump administration, they were the ones that have 
allowed the vaccine to get up in such a short amount of time, but so many of the other parts of the public health response there have um, have put them at a disadvantage now. Yes, you can see that, and we, we are confronting this as well in Australia, it's not just enough to have the technology, the vaccine, you've got to have the means of distributing it. So let's stick with vaccines because one of the questions that we have been getting a lot from our audience over the past few weeks is that now that we're seeing vaccinations, millions of vaccines being distributed globally, when are we going to see cases drop because of vaccination? Well, you're only going to see cases drop when they move beyond the high priority groups, such as healthcare workers, people in aged care and the elderly and infirm. So that will have an impact on deaths. You'll start to see deaths tailing off. But cases will only start to decline when you get the people who are actually being infected at a, in large proportions being immunised. So once you get down the age groups to below 65, to people who are otherwise healthy, when you start immunising those groups in large numbers, they're the people who are actually catching the infection and spreading it. And so once they get immunised, assuming the vaccines control transmission, that's when you will start to see uh, the case rates declining. It may be much slower in countries which are relying on the Astra vaccine. If if we're not getting higher performance rates of the Astra vaccine, we're not going to see transmission declining very fast in Astra countries unless, as I said before, I'm repeating myself, but unless we get high performances out of the Astra vaccine through dosage changes. In places where they're putting the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines in, we should see that a little bit later in the year as people in the younger age groups get immunised. So is it kind of a question of a few months from now or is it as little as weeks? Well, in Israel, it's already starting to move into those groups. And in fact, in Israel and some other countries, when they got to the end of the day in vaccination centres and they had doses to spare, they would text people in those younger groups to come in for immunisation so no doses were wasted. Hopefully we will do the same thing here, although I haven't heard we will. So it depends on each country whether or not they're getting to, to that level. America's got a long way to go, as, um, as have as other countries. Now, if your strategy is to reduce transmission, then you don't worry so much about the older people, which is a problem because you're not going to save lives. You would start immunising young and healthy people so that they stop, they stop spreading the infection to others. So one place where there's a lot of coronavirus still circulating is England. And there was a preprint, so a non-peer-reviewed yet, study that has come out recently saying that nearly a third of people who have been hospitalised for COVID are back in hospital again within five months. Yeah, you know, triple the rate of um, readmission compared to the general population. And it's younger people as well. And it just shows... The, the rate of organ damage, you know, it's lungs, they're, they're getting diabetes, they're getting heart events and so on. In other words, the diabetes is being made worse. So in other words, the people are really sick after COVID-19 disease and they're, they're a continuing burden to the healthcare system. You know, and that sounds cruel to say that. They're, they're really suffering themselves and needing ongoing care. Um, and we've really dodged a bullet here in Australia with our relatively low numbers of cases, albeit quite a lot in in Victoria. But that long tail is really important and significant. 
So yesterday we had on ABC data journalist Dr. Catherine Hanrahan talking about how long lockdowns tend to take in New South Wales. It was based on New South Wales data. And John's got a question about it, Norman, because you've said several times on the podcast before that one week's delay in imposing a lockdown at the beginning um, adds a month at the other end. And But Catherine was saying that a cluster seems to wrap itself up within about three weeks, kind of no matter how big it is. So is there a discrepancy here or have we not explained ourselves well enough? So it's actually for every one day's delay, it's a week at the other end. And that comes from the University of Sydney modelling. So it's one day to one week and doesn't necessarily contradict Catherine's work because each cluster is three weeks. But if there spawns another cluster, it goes another three weeks and then another cluster, another three weeks. So the, you, you get this grumbling wave continuing. Um, and in Victoria, it wasn't a grumbling wave, it was actually a major wave. And it also was modelled according to the infrastructure we had at the time. So this modelling occurred back in March or April, if I remember correctly. And the, uh, the infrastructure and the system has changed. So I'm not sure what the modelling would show. But it's probably not far off, because we are seeing in New South Wales, an extended period albeit at low numbers. And then another question that we answered yesterday was about whether or not someone should wait till they're vaccinated before they try to get pregnant. And Charlotte's asking about, well, Charlotte's making the point that we didn't address whether or not the vaccine will be recommended for breastfeeding mothers and if there are any special considerations that they should keep in mind. I looked at this yesterday and the current view is that there's no reason not to be immunised if you're breastfeeding. First of all, you're not being immunised with the virus. So there's no live virus or even a killed virus in these vaccines. The Pfizer vaccine and the Astra vaccines, you just produce the spike protein. And even the Novavax, when it comes through, it will just be the spike protein, although directly injected. So you're, you're not actually producing the virus or creating a viral disease. So for example, it's not even an, what's called an attenuated live virus like measles. So breastfeeding should be entirely safe and not a problem uh, for COVID-19. And as a breastfeeding mother, you do not want to be catching COVID-19 and passing it to your baby. So I think that people are going to be a bit more relaxed about breastfeeding. Pregnancy is another matter. I've read some commentary saying that even if in the very theoretical and unlikely event that some of the virus did get into, or the virus fragment did get into the breast milk, the, it still then has to navigate through the baby's digestive tract, which would break it down anyway. So there doesn't seem to be any kind of theoretical reason why it would be a problem at all. No, and, and arguably it could be good for the baby because you're getting the spike protein going in through the what's called the mucosal surfaces, and you might actually get some mucosal immunity, in other words, surface immunity in the baby. Who knows? But either way, it there really doesn't seem to be a pathway to harm for the baby and the benefits are quite big. That's right. Well, that's all we've got time for on Coronacast today. If you've got a question, go to abc.net.au slash coronacast, click on Ask a Question and mention Coronacast and we'll pick it up. There are huge numbers of questions coming in and tomorrow we might try Quick Fire Friday. Let's do that. See you then. <laughs> <laughs>